Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Stay in brotherly love. When you're born again, when you first come to Christ, one of the things that you're compelled to is relationships with other Christians. You generally don't have to tell a new believer, listen, you need to get in church, you need to dive in, you need to get to know Christians. New believers are so hungry for the word and hungry for fellowship, hungry for other believers that are as sold out for God as they've become, that they have that strong brotherly love. Why are those relationships in Christ like no other in our lives? Because they are grounded in a love that is like no other. And while it may be easy to love those closest to us, we are commanded to have that God-inspired brotherly love for all those in the body of Christ. God's Word says it's how others will know we are His disciples. Here's Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 4, with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. The title of our message today is Character Development, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 4, not verses 1 through 7. We'll have Character Development Part 2 next week. One of the most important steps when you are writing a novel is character development. You can have the greatest story in the world. You could come up with a unique story, and I don't know that there's anything new under the sun, right? It seems like every story that could be told has already been told. That's why there's remakes of, you know, Spider-Man and Superman all over the place, because nobody's coming up with anything new. But when you're writing a novel, you can have the greatest story in the world, but if you don't develop your character, then people aren't going to read it. What makes a great novel great is that you care about the people in it. They've either developed the character that you like, and you want good things to happen to them, or they develop a character you hate, and you want them to die. And you hope by the end of the book that they do die. But if you are ambiguous about the characters, if you just don't care, then no matter how good the story is, you end up closing the book because you just don't care what happens. I don't know them. I don't like them. I don't know anything about them. Pretty soon you're like, I'm just bored with this book, and you put it aside. Every great novel has in common that it develops character. There is not a great novel that I know of that doesn't do a good job in character development. An example of that is To Kill a Mockingbird, right? It's like everybody's favorite. You've got Atticus Finch, whose character is developed great. He's a widower. He's raising his two kids. He's an attorney in a southern city that defends a black man of rape. And he's got character, and you know that he can handle the situations that come up. You know he's got compassion for his kids. You know he's a faithful man who will be faithful to do what is right. He's the kind of guy that you care about when you read it. Now, I said this, that every great novel has this in common, that they develop character. And let me say this as well. Every great Christian, truly great Christian, has a godly character developed without exception. If you're involved in sin, if you're living in the world, if you're just not living for Christ, if you don't care about people, if you're not an honorable person, if you don't keep your word, if you don't have good godly character, you will not be a great Christian man or a great Christian woman. There has to be godly character developed. And let me say this as well. If you don't develop godly character, the world is going to be ambiguous towards you and ambiguous towards Christ in you. The world just won't care. If they look at you and you tell jokes just like the world does, you're unfaithful just like the world is, you're seeking your own selfish ends, you take advantage of people just like people in the world do, they have no reason to be drawn to you. 
So godly character becomes a major issue because the Bible says, Christian, if you're a born-again Christian, if you've called out upon God, then you are a written epistle, the Bible says, written on by the hand of God and sent out into a lost world. God has taken you and he's written on your life the gospel and he sends you out into the world. And if you don't have godly character, then you will not be a great Christian. You will not be a great representative. Jesus is compelling and you and I are to be like Jesus. That's what Christian means, to be Christ-like. It was first used in Antioch, right? The city of Antioch as a derogatory term, but the Christians took it on gladly because the Bible says in 1 John, be imitators of Christ. It is him that we are supposed to emulate. We're supposed to be friends of sinners and yet have our own righteousness. Oftentimes the church ends up looking more like the Pharisees than they look like Jesus. They end up looking more like the enemies of Christ than they end up looking like him. Here just a little while ago, the television producing world was rocked back on their heels when they put together the miniseries called The Bible. The reason they were rocked back on their heels was that they never expected that it would become the most watched miniseries ever. They didn't understand it. I think I have an understanding of it. We are trying to pull God away from our society, our culture in every way we can. We have a whole generation that is no longer immune to the gospel or to who Jesus is or to what the Bible says. They don't know it. And when they hear about the Bible, Jesus is so compelling that not only when it first came out and was dealing with the Old Testament, did more people watch it than any other miniseries ever, but when it came to Jesus, it had a bump again. And more people watched it than watched the first half because Jesus is compelling. And if you have your character in such a way that people see Christ in you, the hope of glory, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I think he was talking about the cross there, but I think there's a spiritual truth that we cannot get away from, that if Christ is lifted up in us, then people will be compelled. They're compelled by Jesus. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm a witness for Jesus and I'm supposed to live for him, but I have the personality of a rock. Well, it doesn't matter. And notice that I don't offend your personality. Maybe I agree with that. Maybe you have the personality of a rock, but that doesn't matter because it's not your personality that compels people. It is Christ in you that compels them. And if we live our lives in such a way that our character is godly character, then we'll make a difference and we'll change destinies. Jesus said this, you are the light of the world, you. And, and it, this was his disciples who had gathered together on a mountain for the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its savoriness, then it is good for nothing but to be cast on the ground and trampled on foot. He was saying, if you lose your saltiness, if you are no longer different than this world, if you no longer bring the flavor of Jesus into this world and stop corruption, then your lives are good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. It means that you're just living your life for yourself. You're living your life for your own ends. You're living your life for your own means. And that ought to be terrifying to us as Christians because there is a cause and there is a call and God wants your life to count. He's written an epistle on you and he sent you out to your family and to your friends and to your enemies that they would see Christ in you, the hope of glory, and they would be drawn to you. So it doesn't surprise us as we come to the book of Hebrews that Paul now turns, he spent 10 chapters on doctrine, heavy doctrine. 
that the law was weak, but Jesus can save to the uttermost. And Jesus is superior to everything in the temple and everything in the law. In fact, Paul has made his point, point by point by point by point, that these things all spoke of Jesus. Every one of them was in the Old Testament, in the law, in the temple, because they all spoke ultimately of the work that Jesus did. And so now as he encourages them, he gets practical in chapters 11 and 12, and he encourages them to live for Christ, to run the race that's set before them with endurance, to keep going. Now he turns, in the very end of the book, he turns to character. He turns to this rapid fire succession, boom, 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 six things in a row. This is what I want from you. You could say seven. I put two of them together. But there's seven things that are said right away, one after another. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's why I wanted to teach today verses one through seven, because I wanted that rapid fire feeling. But instead, what we're going to do is boom, boom, boom. Then next week, we'll go boom, 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 boom. So we'll cover three of them this week and four of them next week. However, still the idea is the same. This is who we are to be. This is the character that we're to have. If I were going to write on you the epistle and I were going to write four or seven, so we're going to cover seven eventually. If I were to go write into you four character development traits, things that I wanted to develop in you so that you would be the perfect letter to shine for Christ in the middle of a lost world, we find them here. That's what we're finding. And it starts off in verse one with a very short phrase. It says in chapter one of verse 13, as Paul turns away from application and now to direction, he says, let brotherly love continue. He's just getting into this rapid fire succession and he starts off with let brotherly love continue. It's only four words in the English Bible, but it's only two words in the Greek. It's one of the shorter verses in the Bible, the shortest, John eleven thirty five, 35, right? Jesus wept. Well, this one is made up of two words, the first word is, you're very familiar with it, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. We have the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's Philadelphia. The second word is abide or continue. It's M-E-N-U in the Greek. I, th I think that's the way it's spelled. I have trouble pronouncing it. So it's really Philadelphia, stay. Stay in brotherly love. When you're born again, when you first come to Christ, one of the things that you're compelled to is relationships with other Christians. You generally don't have to tell a new believer, listen, you need to get in church. You need to dive in. You need to get to know Christians. New believers are so hungry for the word and hungry for fellowship, hungry for other believers that are as sold out for God as they've become, that they have that strong brotherly love. It's only after a period of time that we discover that some people are weird and maybe we're, we're scared away from it. It's said that 5% of the population is weird. And that's true of 5% of Christians as well. And we find ourselves pulling away from that brotherly love. But what we do in committing to one another, and we're not talking about sappy kind of gooey kind of love. We're not talking about cult kind of love where we want to put a smile on our face. Hi, brother. Happy Sabbath. Okay? We're talking about a very real, genuine love where we truly care about one another. In fact, the word Philadelphia is a fondness. We are to have a fondness to one another. There's other places where we're told that we're to love God's children, that we're to agape them. That's unconditional love. But this word has a fondness to it. You are fond of them. We are to have such a relationship that we're fond of each other. When it comes to this word, it's interesting. When the Bible tells men to love their wives, it uses the word agape. The word agape is unconditional love. 
In other words, men, if your marriage is struggling right now and you say, I just don't love my wife, well, then that's something you need to repent from because you've got to make a decision. This is my wife and I will love her. I will love her no matter what, no matter her flaws, no matter what bugs me, I will love her. You make a commitment to. Doesn't that wives don't need to make that commitment. It's just that the Bible doesn't tell wives specifically to do that. What it tells wives, and this is, this is interesting, what it tells ladies to do, it says, women, be nice to your husbands. <laughs> women, be kind to your husbands. Now, why does it tell men, love your, your wives, agape, unconditional, and ladies, be nice. Just be nice. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Phileo them, love them, be kind to them. Well, that's the love that we're talking about here. That's Philadelphia, that brotherly love, that fondness that we're affectionate towards one another. How important is this? The Bible says that all of the law and the prophets is fulfilled in this, that we love one another. If you and I love one another, we fulfill all the law. 616 commands in the Pentateuch. I didn't count them. Somebody else did. So I'll trust their number. 616, but we don't have to memorize any of them, not even the 10. We just got to walk in love. And if we walk in love, if I'm walking in love towards you and you're walking in love towards me, then we're fulfilling what the Bible says. This is so important for the church. Have you ever gone to visit a church and everyone is cold and distant? I I hope that's not the case here. I I don't get to wander around here enough because we have the two different campuses. It's one of the things that I miss. And as I get older, I miss it even more, being able to, to fellowship with people more. In fact, there was a time when, when my wife died, I backed away from fellowshipping with people a lot, you know, coming down to the, and I've gotten back engaged in that. But a couple of years ago, I stopped coming down off of the stage and engaging with people because I was running into people that were weird. <laughs> I would go down to talk with people and one guy would catch me. He would talk to me for 20 minutes. I'd see people come up that I wanted to meet and walk away and they walk away. And this guy's talking to me about a dream that he had. That's the most bizarre thing that I've ever heard in my life. So I really backed away from that for a while, for probably a year. And then my wife encouraged me that I would get back involved in that. And now I do something that's a little different. You guys will note it. At the end of this service, I say, I'm going to hang out down here. And if you guys have anything long or drawn out or long questions, you need to go to these guys here that are around here. Really in my mind, what I'm saying is if you're weird, go to them. (laughs) I just want to talk to normal people. Hi, how are you? What's your name? What do you do? Get to know them a little bit, right? Now, This is so important to us that we get to know each other, that we're fond of each other, that we love one another. And as I said, you ever go to a church where people don't even make eye contact? You walk into a church, you're all part of the same family. It's been said that you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives. Well, here we are. We're the body of Christ. Or I go to a concert and walk into a concert. Maybe it's a Phil Wickham concert, or maybe it's a Jeremy Camp concert. And I walk in and everybody is just kind of like grumpy and walking and not, no eye contact. That's weird to me. We're all, even though we go to different churches, we're all there to see somebody that's ministered to us. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. There ought to be some eye contact. There ought to be some warmness there. Don't you think? It's always a weird thing for me. And I hope that's not our church. I hope we're not walking around like, you know, I've been going to this church for a year. and No one's made friends with me. I haven't got any friends here. I've been going for a year. Could it be because you're scary? (laughs) The Bible says, if you want friends, you must first be friendly. Could it be that you are as grumpy as can be and people run from you instead of developing a relationship with you? We ought to get to know one another, make eye contact with one another and be warm. This is so important to us that the Bible says they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. In other words, if they come into our church 
And we are no different than going to Walmart. People walk around Walmart ignoring each other and we walk around church ignoring one another. If we are no different, then people aren't gonna see Christ in us. See, when I visit a church and I wanna know, mostly when I go on vacation and I find myself somewhere, I'll go to a Calvary. I'll try to look for a Calvary. Every once in a while, I can't find a Calvary, so I'll go to just a church in the community. When I go, I wanna know whether or not the church is right on and I'm listening for doctrine. I'll go in for the time of worship and then I'm listening to what he says. I wanna hear something about the virgin birth. I wanna hear something about the deity of Jesus. I wanna hear something about the return of Jesus. And once I get those things, I'm like, yeah, this place is right on, that's great. However, the people in the world don't know doctrine like I know doctrine. They don't know what the fundamentals of the Christian faith are. For all, for all they know, it could be something weird. And so when they come into our place and somebody doesn't know the Lord, it doesn't know doctrine, they're gonna know we're Christians by the love that we have for one another. And if we don't have it, we are not gonna be good evangelists. People are not gonna come to Christ if we don't have that. They will know that we are his true disciples and that's part of what we need to do in evangelism is loving one another and getting to know one another and having that real fondness towards each other. And if we'll do that, we'll be effective. The first character that we develop, I've put down as faithful in friendship. That if we're gonna have an epistle written by God and sent out into the world, then we need to be faithful in friendship. I... Uh, talking to my wife about this about a year ago, I developed a lot of the character that I have towards, towards friends. My morals were developed by Star Trek. It's kind of a weird thing. See, I was a Star Trek geek. When I was in junior high, it was on TV, not the reruns, the actual originals. And they reran them the next year on, at like four o'clock in the afternoon. So after school, I would be in my little checkered pants. I'm in seventh grade and I would run home as fast as I could go so I could get home to watch Star Trek. In fact, I ran back and forth to my classes when I was in seventh grade as well until one of my friends, Cliff LeBlanc, said, please stop running between your classes. You're the only geek in the school running between your classes. God was just getting ready, ready for two campuses. <laughs> Personality. Going to my next class. Got to get there. Got to get there. Okay? Now... In Star Trek, if you're, you're, if you're a Trekkie, okay? In Star Trek, they always stuck with their friends, right? Didn't matter how bizarre their friends got. Didn't matter what they did. Later on, they find out there was an alien inside of them that had to be sucked out. Or whatever the problem was, there was a faithfulness to those who were there. And if ever they weren't, there was a sense of there's been a betrayal. And I think that that's good. I think that there's a good, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but I think we ought to have Star Trek morals in our friendships that we are truly faithful to one another and faithful as friends. That's the first thing that's brought up here. And I'm not sure whether this is one of his bullet points or if this is not his main point that all the bullet points come after it. Brotherly love continue. Philadelphia stay, that we would be fond of one another. It goes on to say then in verse two, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's kind of an odd verse. Don't forget to entertain strangers. It's something we need to continually remind ourselves because it's easy to walk by strangers. It's easy to walk by people we don't know. It's easy to see someone who's struggling and who has a need and not reach out to help them. It's easy to get into that mode. So remember to entertain strangers. God's desire that you and I would reach out and help the struggling and help the poor. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the man who gives to the poor or lends to the poor, God will repay. You lend unto the Lord and the Lord will repay. You and I never have to be afraid of giving to the poor and giving to the struggling. In fact, I think that act of kindness is important. I uh, try to help the homeless out when I run into them. 
down on 4th Avenue. We ran into a few people who were begging. I was up in Phoenix uh, not long ago, uh, kind of along Mill Street there, which is where ASU is. There's a lot of beggars that are there. And, um, you know, they have just kind of different kind of techniques. It's their little, the way they do it. Some people will say, well, I'm hungry, I need food. And other guys will go, listen, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I just want some alcohol, all right? So can you give me some money? And I think it's their stick, right? I think that some people, especially people who like to drink, are going to be like, yeah, man, you need to party too. Here, have some money. They know they're going to be effective in doing that. And so I used to, when they'd give me that particular stick, when they would say, listen, I'm going to be honest with you, man, I just need some cigarettes, I would go, well, I'm not going to give it to you then. I'd put my money back away. I always try to carry some cash so I can give it to someone, who, you know, and I know it's a small amount. I know it really doesn't make that much of a difference, but I think it's a point of kindness. I think we're being kind to someone who's in need. And I used to put the money away. We were up at, in Phoenix or Long Mill Street, and a guy said that whole tobacco thing to me, and I gave him the money anyway. A little bit later on, my youngest son said, I think that's good that you gave it to him anyway, even though he's going to buy tobacco. And I said, how do you know he's going to buy tobacco? How do you know he wasn't lying? He's really going to buy food. And he was just doing that to be able to people say, well, you're an honest bum. I'll give you money, right? So we don't know. But I think the act of kindness is godliness. And even though you can say God bless you because they say God bless you to you when you give them the money and you say God bless you back. And I've tried before to say, no, really, seriously, God bless you. Like really, not a pretend God bless you, but a real God bless you. But I think God will cover those bases. I think as we start to reach out to those who are strangers and those who are struggling. So I'm driving to church last night. And I'm going to be teaching on strangers unaware. Some have unwittingly entertained angels, meaning that God sends angels out looking like people who are in need to test us to see what we're going to do. And I wonder if you've ever ran into an angel. I mean, if you knew they were an angel, that big wings on, all of a sudden you got a flash of who they were, you would be like, oh, come in, I'll take you in my car, take you to my house, take care of you. But entertaining strangers unaware. So I'm driving to church and I get to a corner. This message is in the oven. All day Saturday, I get my message done, and then it kind of cooks throughout the day. So I'm thinking about angels unaware, and I pull up on a corner. And there's a young kid standing on the corner. He's got earplugs in his ears, got a backpack on, and he's dancing while he's listening to his music, and he's holding up a cardboard sign. It says 22 and homeless. So I'm sitting at the light, and I'm looking at him, and I'm kind of thinking, I'm in the middle lane. I'm kind of thinking, maybe I should call him over. Maybe I should talk to him. Maybe he's an angel. And I drive away. And then as I drive away, I'm thinking, maybe he was an angel. Maybe I should go back. No, I can't go back. Maybe I should go back. I'm late. I got to go back. I want to go back. The essence is I didn't go back. <laughs> but I, I wondered at the end of all of that, did God not just put an angel there? It, it would be just like God, wouldn't it? To say, let me just see how much you really think about what you're saying. Whether you really care about this. Listen, the Bible says, give and it will be given unto you. Press down, shaken together and running over. Not because God is trying to get you to get greedy. Boy, if I give God, people are going to give to me. Uh, the Bible, God says, test me in this. Give, and I will give back to you. I think that God does that because he wants us to be generous. He wants us to be generous towards the work that he does for the gospel, because people need to be saved. He wants us to be generous towards those who are impoverished. God cares so much about widows and orphans that in the book of Exodus, once he gives the law, he's now giving them the two chapters that follow the Ten Commandments on precedent. It's just precedent for the judges. So the judges would have a way of saying, this is what we do. This is what it says here, and this is how we apply it. But right in the middle of those chapters on precedent, God says this. If someone among you takes advantage of widows and orphans, now he's talking to judges, right? If somebody among you takes, takes advantage of widows and orphans, I'll kill them. God says, I'm not even going to leave it to you guys as judges. God cares so much about them that God just said, I'll finish them off. You're offending me. 
We would want to make sure that we are not making money on the back of those who are impoverished and that we are doing whatever we can do to go out of our way to help them out. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.